Hi, this is Whitney Johnson, author of Build an A-Team, and you are listening to my quest for the best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Whitney Johnson. Whitney Johnson is the CEO of Disruption Advisors, a tech-enabled talent development company and an expert on growing your people to grow your company, known as Smart Growth Leadership. She's an award-winning author, world-class keynote speaker, frequent lecturer for Harvard Business Publishing's Corporate Learning Division, and an award-winning executive coach and advisor to CEOs. Disrupt Yourself is Whitney's podcast that everyone interested in having fascinating conversations with highly accomplished individuals would enjoy. Find a prominent link in the show show notes to that podcast. Thinkers 50 ranked Whitney Johnson among the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world in 2021. In 2020, she was a top voice on LinkedIn, where she has 1.8 million followers. In addition, she's a returning guest on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to check out episode 371. She's the author of several best-selling books, including Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team. Whitney lives in Lexington, Virginia, and is here to talk about her book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you, Bill. 371 episodes? Wow. Oh, we're coming up on 400. Oh, 400. That's impressive. I'm sure as well that the average podcast goes on and 90% of them don't make it to episode 20. I know on your podcast, you're up in the 180s, I think. Actually, 250. But I have a long way to go before I catch up with you. You're in the lead. I'm questing for the best with Bill Ringel. Excellent. (laughs) In your quest in a day-to-day life, what's a quote that inspires you in your work these days? I have a favorite quote. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, rings and jewels are but apologies for gifts. The only true gift is a portion of thyself. That inspires me because I want to make sure that when I show up to my work that I'm giving the gift of myself. That sounds like it's also relevant to your executive coaching work and helping teams develop to help them find that gift and learn to give it generously to others. Yeah, I love that. I love that you drew that out. I think that's right. A great coach is one that who pulls out and helps people see their talents, help them, helps them name their gifts and helps them be their best self. This book is called Build an A-Team. For everyone listening, how do you know whether you have one? Do they ever appear spontaneously? He says with time. <laughs> firmly in cheek. No, they do not appear spontaneously. It's a great question. Obviously, there's a play on the show that was on TV back in the 70s, I think it may be the 80s of building an A-team. But the idea is that the way you build an A-team and some of the characteristics of it are twofold. Number one is that you know where everybody is in their growth. Everybody has momentum in their growth, regardless of whether they're just starting out in the role or they're starting to be in mastering their role. And you also have this sense of, everybody, if you're moving up a mountain together, everyone's helping everyone else move up that mountain. The way I think about it is you've got to move up a mountain by yourself, but you can't do it alone. Those are the starting characteristics of a great team of an A-team. I love that image of making it up a mountain on your own because it's very much contradictory to what a lot of business leaders think, where if you just hire superstars, that makes a business stronger. It makes you more accomplished. In some ways, there's evidence that shows that a superstar salesperson outperforms others many times over. And a superstar coder is five to eight times more valuable than an average coder. Yet it doesn't work that way across the teams. Can you expand on that a little bit, please? 
Yeah. One of the things that we're finding, and I think a, a great piece of research that I'll mention is that Apple, a few years ago, Joel Podolny and Morton Hansen wrote an article and they looked at the management structure of Apple. One of the things that they found is that unless you can collaborate across the organization because of the way that they build the products, people are not able to move beyond the VP level. One of the things that you want to be able to look for is, yes, if you've got a great coder, that's important. But if the coder talk to anybody else in the organization, they can't work with everybody across the organization to deliver the product. An effective person is someone who can actually get something done. Then are they worth five to eight times? Yes, you want that skill set. You want that expertise, but you also need people who can get things done. That by definition means you're working with other people to get those things done. That was one of my formative experiences working at Apple. When I was out in Cupertino, I would meet people who were just the most fascinating, brilliant people I've ever met. The hardest working people there were the managers looking to bring discipline, looking to build order in that environment. I could say from the inside out, and my experience is is from back in the 90s, but it was something that I'll always remember. And that research just seems so on target. I would include that research in the show notes. I completely had forgotten that you worked at Apple. That's so interesting. It's an HBR article, include it in the show notes. But I love that your experience maps to or jibes with what their research has shown over the past couple of years. That's fantastic. I remember going over to someone whose name was Sid. It's very funny thinking about him now because with work from home, how people are talking about how everything's more relaxed. He dressed super relaxed. He came in with sandals and shorts and t-shirts and stuff, but he was the one that everyone went to solve problems of a particular type on a project team. You didn't bother Sid until after one o'clock. He would be in and he just needed to have heads down coding. And after, even though there wasn't anything on his desk or in his area that was a closed door, you just knew not to approach him before then because he was just focused on getting things done. Getting things done individually, but then it sounds like in the afternoon, he was available to get things done collectively. I love that. There were very clear boundaries. Morning, individual, afternoon, collective. It's interesting because we had to intuit that type of rule. I think that happens probably in a lot of organizations. It's even more invisible now that we don't have the ability to observe how people interact with each other in a work environment. But we have to understand these invisible relationships and rules for getting things done. What have you found that helps people get things done while working from home and now as we're in this big transition of this hybrid work environment? Bill, the word that's coming to my mind is communicate, communicate communicate. I think that on the one hand, there is a disadvantage because like you said, there's not that observable behavior like with Sid and you could intuit what was happening. At the same time, I think that means that because we know that we can't observe what's happening, we're probably going to be more willing to ask and look to be more explicit. There's research that shows that we think when I say something to you, I think that you understood what I had to say. But the reality is that there's a big delta between 30% what I think I communicated to you is very different than what you think was communicated to you. The more willing we are to be very explicit of here's what I said, here's what I think I said, what did you think I said? What am I observing? With Sid, okay, I'm observing. I think that you want to not be bothered until one in the afternoon. That's going to make a big difference for us to be able to work effectively in this remote and hybrid work. Now, here's something that I think is interesting, Bill, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I have this hypothesis that people who 
grew up gaming, who are in their 20s and 30s, and maybe even early 40s, who grew up gaming actually are very well equipped for hybrid work when they were playing multiplayer games. I look at my son who's 25. He's been working remotely, hybrid-y, his entire life. What do you think of that? Do you agree with that? I also have a son who's 25, and he was into gaming, but not in a really deep way. I actually did a little bit of research when he was in his early teens to see if it was a terrible thing to let him go into this and develop these skills. Actually isn't. There's research around that shows this is true. And my empirical evidence is that, yes, it helped him develop the communication skills, the signaling of when to do things and what it meant when he went to someone's right or when he collected things in a certain order in some of his games. I think that was really interesting. One of the areas that you talk about with communicate is really interesting from a parenting standpoint is that every parent who has ever asked the question, so how was your day? Grunt response. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) But loves when you get those details. I found that it was an entree into understanding what was going on in his world to ask, how are you progressing in that game? He would tell me his strategies and he would tell me what he was thinking about and what his struggles were and what his problem-solving approaches were to that. I enjoyed that aspect and that portion of his life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is useful when we ask people about things that they're actually interested in, isn't it? Now, I'm going to go back to something that you said about the importance of communicate, 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 Mm -hmm. because it's important to ask questions and to be explicit about things. I think that it's an advantage to have a model in your mind when you ask questions to see what's matching and what's different. You're known, Whitney, for saying that your team is a collection of S-curves. Can you explain that in a way that is relevant to people looking to check in with each other? during this period of hybrid work. Absolutely. All right. So very briefly, the S-curve, some of you are going to be familiar with this. It's been used in product development for an extended period of time. It's been around since the 60s when Everett Rogers popularized it and he used it to figure out how groups change over time and looking at innovations and they're adopted in the shape of an S. Well, as I was investing with Clayton Christensen, using the S-curve to look at how quickly innovations would be adopted, I had this aha, this insight that we could also use the S-curve to look at how individuals change over time. I'm going to ask all of you to trace with your finger this line from left to right, flat. That's the launch point or the beginning when you're starting something new. One of the things you know about the launch point is that growth is happening, but it's going to feel slow. Then you reach a tipping point, and this is the knee of the curve, and this is the steep, sleek back of that S. And here is where growth is actually happening very quickly. It feels like it's happening quickly. You've got this place of fast, and it's exhilarating as opposed to over overwhelming at the launch point. Then you reach mastery, the top of that S-curve, and it flattens out. This is a place where growth has become slow. You've figured things out. You've got slow and then fast and slow. It becomes this very simple way to visualize your growth. And you can use it for you individually. You can use it to think about where is my team in terms of its cohesion uh, along that S-curve. The reason it becomes a useful language to have a conversation is because it is so simple, because it is so visual, it becomes very useful to be able to say, all right, you just started something new. Where do you feel like you are on the S-curve? Do you feel like you're at the launch point where you're just like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing? Or did we hire you in at the sweet spot where you actually feel like you're pretty good at this role? You've gotten a good sense of the people that you're going to need to do work with to get things done. Or you don't want to hire someone here unless you're explicit about this. Have we hired you in at mastery? And we have this very clear agreement that yes, for a time, you're going to do 
whatever it is we hired you to do very well, but then we're going to give you the opportunity to jump to the launch point of a new curve so that you can continue to grow. That's this tool to have a conversation about growth and development in an organization, whether it's for people or for a product that you're trying to develop. I love that explanation. I would like to ask you whether you think of this the same way that I do, in that there are dozens, if not hundreds of these curves that every person has, then what we're working on as a team is a particular collection of those curves where each person is on his or her curve, on an S-curve for the team to produce a particular objective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For you as an individual, Individual, you have a portfolio of S curves. You probably don't want to have more than three or four at a time. You've got your career S curve and you've got your family S curve and you've got maybe volunteer work or your church S curve, but you've got three or four that you're doing it at one time. Now at work, what you can do is you can look at your team as a collection of S curves. Every single person is on an S curve. What I advise you to do is to think about initially configuring your team standard bell curve distribution where you have about 60% of your people in the sweet spot of their growth where they know enough but not too much. You want to have up to 20% at the launch point where they're asking questions. Why do we do it like this? Because that's going to open the door to innovation, but you don't want too many there because people at the launch point need a lot of training. They need a lot of encouragement to build that momentum to move into the sweet spot. Then you want to have no more than 20% of your people in mastery. They have that institutional memory. They can say, here's why we're doing it this way. But as we talked about just a minute ago, their growth is slowing. They've got to find a way to personally re-engage that growth so that they can continue to contribute to the organization at a very high level. But if you think about your team, as a portfolio of S-curves and you can optimize your team for growth and innovation. You don't want to have all of your people in mastery. You don't want to have all of your people at the launch point. You want to balance them like you would a portfolio in order to optimize for growth and innovation. I love that you're bringing the portfolio language because that draws upon your prior experience in trading and stocks and as an analyst. I think that managers can look at it and say, if I'm looking to develop the people on my team, here's where they are in their performance work maybe take another view of it and say, here's where they are in building relationships within the organization. And here's where they are in thinking about who's ready to be promoted to the next level. There are just all these different conversations that this is a super useful tool for working with. And analyzing, assessing the current ground of a situation. Yeah, that's right. You raise a really important point, Bill, that a person can come into a role and be at the top of the S-curve in terms of what the role requires of them from a domain expertise or as a subject matter expert. But in terms of being able to say they're capable of climbing the mountain by themselves, but are they capable of bringing everybody else along that mountain? If part of their job is to bring everybody else along, then they're not at the top of the curve. They're still either they're at the launch point or they're in mass or in, in the sweet spot. When you're thinking about this curve in terms of a role, you want to, as you say, look at all of the elements. Is it your expertise, your ability to bring other people along, um, both the hard and the soft? That's a great point. In helping develop people, risk is always an external measurable side. Risk has two sides. First, there's the external measurable side of whether we've brought in enough revenue, whether we've del delivered something in a timetable. Then there's also the internal side of risk, which is an internal or perceptual one. I've never given a, a presentation to that many people before, or I've never created a report and then presented it to the vice president. Let's talk about risk in, in terms of stretch assignments, where a manager says, I need to give people stretch assignments so they can grow in an actual environment. Many people today are thinking of risk, thinking in terms of stretch assignments saying, I'm not being challenged. I'm not getting the kind of challenge I want 
in a hybrid environment, and my manager hasn't noticed. How would you suggest bridging that gap while de-risking it so that somebody doesn't just resent not being challenged and start looking elsewhere as a key performer in an organization? Then a manager would say, uh, it's the end of the quarter, and I haven't given my people any assignments, and I know that I'm going to be asked about this, so I better just give them everything that's on my plate that I don't want to deal with. That's a terrible way to give any kind of assignment. It's flip-flopping, isn't it, right? It's go 100 miles an hour or zero. So this is where you really can use the the S-curve as well, because it allows you to have that conversation. What I'm hearing in this particular instance would be happening is that you could have an employee say, "I, I feel like I am at the top of my curve. What you've asked me to do, I feel like I'm there and I'm, I'm getting a bit bored. That means I've got this latent innovative capacity. It's not that I don't like the company and it's not that I don't like you, but my brain needs some dopamine. It needs to be, it needs to have that chemical of delight. That allows the, the employee to have the conversation. At the same time, it allows you as a manager to think, okay, so they want to grow, but that doesn't mean I'm going to push them off the mountain. Okay, great. Here you go. Shove off the mountain and hope you can do it. No ropes, no ability to rappel down the mountain. Whitney, if you would go through these as everyone who's going to be making the journey up the mountain needs to assess what's in their toolkit so that they could be well prepared to move up the mountain and contribute and also help others. One of the things that you can do to bridge that is we, in our work, we talk about the framework of personal disruption and we've got seven accelerants that allow you think about it as you're moving up the mountain. These are tools that you would put into your backpack to make it up that mountain. As you're thinking about this stretch assignment for your people, uh, there are seven pieces of this and I'll just go through them very quickly. The first is to take the right kinds of risk and to put your people as you're thinking about stretching them, give them opportunities to take on risk, but not so much competitive risk, market risk, meaning don't necessarily pit them against other people. Say, hey, there's this thing that looks interesting. Why don't you see if you can go figure this out? And I'll give you some latitude to do that. In fact, I want you to tell me what you think we should be working on. Give them an opportunity to take on market risk. And that is allows them to start to move up that curve, move up that mountain in an effective way. Second thing is to play to your distinctive strengths. In order for people to be at their most effective, they need to feel strong. You want to stretch people, but stretch them in ways that leverage their strengths. Because if you feel strong, then you're going to be comfortable playing where no one else is playing. Right risks and strengths become flywheels for each other. You're much more likely to create something new. Number three is you want to embrace your constraints. So as you're moving up that mountain, there can be this tendency of if the weather were perfect, if I had nothing in my backpack, then I could move up the mountain. But we all know from physics that in order for us to gain any sort of traction, we need to have something to push against. As you're thinking about moving up that mountain, you want to understand that it is your constraints can become a tool of creation. You're balancing it out as a manager. Don't give them too much, but make sure they have enough because it's those constraints that are going to give them that momentum to move up the mountain. Number four, you want to examine your expectations. If you start to move up this mountain um, of your S curve and you think this is going to just take me three months to get this project done. In fact, it's going to take them nine months. You want to make sure that you're managing that expectation because if you don't and you don't make it up, that dopamine drops and it's very demotivating. How do you find ways to make sure that there's dopamine at the launch point, the sweet spot and mastery? That's what's going to keep us going. That's number four, examine expectations. Whitney, I love point four because it means that a manager is looking at their curve in a, a very sophisticated way where they're looking to add excitement and interest at the bottom of the curve, the middle of the curve, and at the top of the curve. And that's something that requires a lot of individual thought. And I'm sure that every employee is really going to appreciate that. 
That's right. Number five is step back in order to grow. Lots of different ways you can interpret that might be a lateral move inside of your organization in order to move up over time. It might be something as simple as you're moving up the mountain and you're loving but you need to rest. You need to take a break. You need to take a day off so that you have that restoration, that recharge, and you need to make it up the curve. Number six is to give failure its due. This is the idea of we all know we're going to make mistakes. In fact, mistakes and failures can become a constraint. They can become a tool of creation. The question is that we want to make sure that we don't have shame around that failure. If we start to feel shame, then we got to probably do some inner work and know that we need to jettison that because that will be an albatross that pulls you down. Give failure, iterate, look for the ROI on failure. And number seven is to be driven by discovery. To recognize that when you are um, disrupting yourself, you're playing where you haven't played before, which means you're going to end up in a place probably that you haven't expected. But that's part of the process is that willingness to take a step forward to gather feedback and adapt. Recapping quickly, number one, take the right risks. Number two, play to your strengths. Number three, embrace your constraints. Number four, examine your expectations. Number five, step back to slingshot forward. Number six, failure is a constraint, a tool of creation. And number seven, at the top of the curve and the bottom of the curve and everywhere in between be driven by discovery. Put those tools in your backpack as a manager, as an employee, those that will allow you to optimize for that challenge and so that your employee can make it up the curve. You as a manager have helped them make it up the curve. I love that, Whitney. It means that everyone who is an employee has to be proactive. It goes back to the seven habits of highly effective people that Stephen Covey talked about. The very first thing is that we must be proactive and responsible for taking charge of our journey in each work assignment that we take. Whitney, with many professionals taking new jobs and companies welcoming them in, one thing that I've heard has been really lacking, has almost been absent from many conversations, is revamping the onboarding process. What's your view of a few must-dos and must-not-dos to have an excellent initial experience? Okay, so must-dos, week one, and you might have done this actually before, is to be very clear on what is the why of your organization? What are you as an organization? What is your team trying to get done? Also be really clear on what is it this person is trying to get done? Meaning what job did this person hire you as a manager and hire the company to do for them? So that again, managing expectations and examining expectations. And number three, be really clear. Here's why I hired you. Here's what success looks like. This goes back to the communicate, communicate, communicate. That's the first week. I would also say for the first six months and maybe first three months is set some really clear short-term goals of here's what success is going to look like in two weeks, four weeks, and also have as part of the onboarding process, here are the five people, the 10 people, the 15 people I want you to go get to know. I want you to understand what they're trying to get done. Think about how you can support them, how you can help them. This is about plugging yourself into the network because right now I don't want you to figure out what you're going to do. I just need you to understand what's happening so that once you figure out what it is you're going to do, you have the people and the relationships that you need to actually get something. Those are some things I would do in the first couple of months. Do you have an example of a team or an executive you've worked with who did that? You could contrast that with maybe what happened before and what happened after they started taking that care 
to build these pieces into their onboarding process. Yeah. One example is uh, Marco Tricocci. He is the CIO at Four Seasons in Canada. When he first started, he had thought, okay, I've got a plan and I'm going to execute against this plan. The now CEO of the company, John Davison, said, I actually don't want you to do that. What I want you to do is I want you to just get to know people. I want you to observe. I want you to understand how things work and how things get done here. Then in six months, you can come to me with a plan. Prior to coming to Four Seasons, he had been doing consulting and done a number of operational roles out of Europe. He had really strong operational background and was capable of executing. I think what had happened is they said, he's going to need to come into this culture and be able to get these things done. We want you just to figure out what is the lay of the land. By doing that, and here's what's so powerful, is he was able to implement a very massive overhaul of their legacy technology systems over the subsequent five to 10 years because of those relationships. He had the expertise, but he took the time to build the relationships so that he could execute against his plan. I think that's something that everyone listening ought to take a step back and reevaluate. Whether they're building the relationships that are going to help them be effective, contribute, and understand their organization so much better if they put that on their calendar to spend two or three times when we'd normally be saying, hey, why don't we grab coffee together? Hey, why don't we go out to lunch together or meet after work for drinks or something? We need to be proactive and really deliberate and intentional about doing that in order to move ourselves up the S-curve because no one's going to do it for us. Again, this goes back to this idea of you've got to go up that S-curve yourself, but you cannot do it alone. The challenge, of course, is that when you're brand new and you're at the launch point, you're feeling usually this huge identity shift, somewhat insecure. There's this desire to perform. You've got this desire to perform. And that's the very thing that you should not be doing is preening your feathers is to be hanging back and developing relationships and you can perform together. But that's what's going on psychologically, which is why it's so challenging to do. Yes. I was coaching a manager who was a senior director and was just hired in. And he said to me, I knew that I made a mistake, but I couldn't help myself starting to criticize people because I had to feel like I was contributing something. I just felt all this anxiety. Perfect example of that. Yeah. Interesting. Anxiety is something that a lot of people are feeling, whether they're new or having been in an organization for quite a while. Mental health and emotional safety are so important in every type of work, especially where you're building an A-team. What's an example of how an organization can build that emotional safety and address the mental health issues effectively? Yeah, such a great question. Let me tell you about Samantha. One of the CEOs I coach, uh, I just finished her 360. And it was really interesting listening to what people had to say about her. They said things like, I know she has my back. I know she will take a bullet for me. I know that she will stand up and she will protect me. They feel a tremendous amount of psychological safety. This team, not surprisingly, is highly effective and they're working together. In addition to that, once you've got that foundation, the other thing that they said is she lets me do my job. She doesn't micromanage me, which means they're saying, she trusts me. She thinks I'm competent. She thinks I can do the work. She's creating this place where people feel safe and they know she's going to give them cover. At the same time, she is giving them that space so that they can do their job. They feel the sense of autonomy and they therefore can grow. The ability to grow once people feel safe is a very strong predictor for how long people are going to stay working for you. Okay. Whitney, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Yes, I am. All right. So 
because you're a second uh, time guest, I've got different questions for you. What is something you had in your bedroom as a teenager that meant a lot? I had a quilt that was turquoise and that my mother and I quilted together. What's a tool or system you use to help you produce your popular Disrupt Yourself podcast? A very big microphone that says Chaotica on it so that the sound is good, (laughs) which you can see right now. It's like the size of a softball. Whitney, in the last three months, what's the method that you use for connecting with a favorite new client? Seeing them in person. Excellent. What's a book that you've given the most as a gift in the last year that's not one of your own? Backable by Sunil Gupta. What are three sources of news, education, or relaxation that you read, watch, or listen to that your week would not feel complete without? Number one is reading books that allow me to prepare to interview people for my podcast. And my life would not be complete without that. Number two would be listening to scriptural and sacred texts, which I do every day, and my life would not be complete without that. And number three would be in the evening, our family likes to watch Korean dramas together, and my life would not be complete without that form of entertainment. Who reads the scriptural um, texts? And where do you listen? uh, What channel do you tune into to the uh, Korean uh, dramas? So for the scriptural and sacred texts, we listen to an app called the Come Follow Me. And for the entertainment, we watch Korean dramas on Netflix. Fabulous. If you had the opportunity to put a single sentence reminder to leaders and rising stars about playing to their strengths and lead others up the learning curve, what would that one sentence be? The fundamental unit of growth in every organization is the individual. Whitney Johnson, you have been so helpful and generous with sharing with us today about being a leader and a participant on an A-team. I want to thank you so much for your contributions to my quest for the best. We talked about different examples of being able to identify an S-curve and use them in conversations to help people um, that you're leading. And also as a self-diagnostic, we've talked about the importance of communicate, 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 take nothing for granted and be explicit about it. You reminded us about the importance of having a balance on your team of about 20% at the launch phase, 60% at the growth phase or the sweet spot, and then mastery at 20%. We talked about the importance of making sure that you had all of those seven tools that you listed in your backpack as you ascend an S-curve in order to do so successfully and to keep in touch with your teammates. One of the metaphors that I'll take away from this that I love so much is that each of us ascends a mountain on our own with our own skills, yet it's not enough because we have to bring others along in order to be successful. So for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online? The easiest place is for people to go listen to the Disrupt Yourself podcast. Um, If you like listening to podcasts, which you probably do because you're listening to Bill and or you can go buy my book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Alyssa Johnson, Chief Information Security Officer at Xerox said about Build an A-Team that in a time when the skills gaps are rising and technology is always changing, Reed Johnson's Build an A-Team to learn how to build a highly productive team and keep it. Whitney Johnson, author of Build an A-Team, play to their strengths and lead them up the learning curve. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks for having me, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, 
course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.